Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to LSE and tonight's event, Not Yet Over the Rainbow, Contemporary Barriers to LGBT Equality in the Legal Profession. Um, so tonight's event is brought to you by the LSE Law Department and Spectrum, which is the uh, LSE's uh, LGBT staff network. And I'm actually here in a representative capacity for both of those tonight. So I'm both an assistant professor in the LSE Law Department and also a committee member of Spectrum. So I'm glad to be here to introduce it in both those capacities. Now, before we move on to the main focus tonight and before I introduce our illustrious speakers for the evening, um, I'd just like to use my duty as chair to sort out a couple of administrative basics. In the unlikely event of a fire, um, we just evacuate out this and we go assemble out the front of the building. Hopefully that's not something you're going to have to worry about too much. I will remind you if a fire <laughs> breaks out. Um, secondly, the Twitter hashtag for this event is hashtag LSELGBT, pretty straightforward, so tweet away. Um, and certainly I know um, that uh, Bradley will be taking Twitter questions at some point throughout the evening. Uh, and then uh, also we are hoping to record this, well, we are recording this event and we're hoping to turn it into a podcast. And so look out for that uh, in the near future and be, um, if you want to digest it at your leisure. Okay. Now, as chair, I also don't want to steal too much time from the substance of what our speakers are going to say, but I think it's worth saying a couple of very general comments before we proceed further. So in some ways, it's remarkable how much progress has been made um, uh, in the profession in the last uh, several decades. Um, you know, it wasn't too long ago that uh, same-sex sexual activity was illegal in this country um, or that being LGBT in any form could get you classified as having some kind of psychiatric disorder. We've moved on from those days to some extent, but even as little as eight years ago, there wasn't a single law firm in the Stonewall Workplace Equality Index's top 100 employers. Um, that's different now. We have 12 law firms who are in the top 100, and we have one law firm which has graduated to the rather extraordinary position of star performer, which I understand sort of floats over the rest of the Workplace <laughs> Equality Index. Um, and aside from Stonewall, there are also the series of organizations specific to the profession that concern themselves with LGBT equality and diversity issues. So there's BLAG, the Bi-Lesbian and Gay Group, LAGLA, the Lesbian and Gay Lawyers Association, the Interlaw Diversity Forum, uh, and then elsewhere you have things like the Law Society's um, Equality and Diversity and Social uh, um, Mobility Committee, um, and even uh, events like Diversity in Law, which tries to encourage LGBT undergraduates um, to enter the legal profession. Um, and, of course, individual law firms all have their own structures and groups as to how they kind of approach these issues. But despite these institutional changes and increased visibility, we haven't quite yet achieved utopia, right? There are still issues specific to LGBT people in all of these environments relating to recruitment, retention, and promotion, to coming out to work, uh, at work, to both colleagues and to clients and the implications that that might have, juggling relationships, caring for children, Leslie Moran's research on the profession found that elite, educated, white, straight males still tend to dominate the positions of prestige and high reward in the legal profession. And the further you move away from that image, whether because of your gender or your sexual orientation or um, disability or otherwise, um, the harder it is to, to sort of reach those higher rewards. Indeed, when it comes to things like the judicial selection process, fully 70% of LGBT lawyers surveyed felt there was still um, just a lot of raw prejudice in that selection process. So there may be some progress, but there is still a long way to go, particularly in dealing with uh, issues relating to intersectional prejudice. 
So who better to discuss some of these developments, the progress we've made and the barriers we still face, than tonight's panel? So starting us off tonight is going to be uh, Claire Fox, who is a practicing barrister at Pump Court Chambers, um, and she is the co-chair of the aforementioned BLAG, the Bar Lesbian and Gay Group. Um, and following her will be Sarah Hannett, who is a public law and human rights barrister at Matrix Chambers. Um, she's a member of the advisory board of the Centre for Access to Justice at UCL and has previously worked as a lecturer at UCL, Queen Mary and the University of New South Wales. So welcome back to the university <laughs> environment. Uh, and then our final speaker today will be Daniel Winterfeld, who is the ca- head of capital markets at CMS Cameron McKenna, as well as its diversity and inclusion partner, and who is the founder of the Interlaw Diversity <laughs> Forum. Um, so that's probably enough from me for now. So, Claire, why don't you start? <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, well, um, thank you for having us. It's always a privilege um, to be invited to speak to students we were once in your shoes so thank you for inviting us here and it's a privilege to talk to you this evening um hopefully i'll tell you a little bit about me but not too much um a little bit about my experience at the bar and then a little bit about blag other organizations that are out there in the legal profession what what the achievements have been and what the problems are what things are happening what's not happening uh, and to give you an idea of you know, what my experience has been. Um, so I um, was called to the bar in 2003. I'm a family barrister. I've been practicing since then. I'm now at Pump Court Chambers, um, uh, although I started off elsewhere and did um, family and immigration, but I'm a specialist in family law. Um, I am co-chair of BLAG, so the Bar Lesbian and Gay Group, and um, some of you may know of BLAG or heard of BLAG, but if not, <laughs> don't worry. We are a fairly small organization, but we were set up uh, 21 years ago uh, by me- um, members of the bar to provide a community and a, a, a support network for barristers who are LGBT at the bar. And so we've been going since then, and we have about 260 members, and we have social events, quite a few, some lectures, and we really exist really to provide a, a community and a forum for barristers. It can be quite intimidating, what I imagine, whatever um, workforce you're in, um, if you don't feel that you're going to be accepted. So I feel that that's one of the important things that BLAG does is it provides a way of meeting other people, like-minded people, LGBT people, so you know that there are people like you out there. And I think that's still important and still really needed um, in, in this times, in these times. And um, I'm also uh, banging my equality and diversity tambourine. I'm also the equality and diversity um, officer in chambers, and I'll talk about that very briefly, so it's not to bore you. And um, each member, each chambers has now, under the bar equality rules, has to have an equality and diversity officer. Uh, and I think those, that's some of the changes that we've seen, some of the important changes that we've seen within chambers. And just to make you aware, in case any of you want to look it up or find out more about it, there's a new organization which is launching on the 17th of February called Free Bar, F-R-E-E Bar. They were, 
I'm sure they won't mind me telling you, going to call themselves gay bar, but I, 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 <laughs> I said that's not a good idea. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's an organisation supported by Stonewall, uh, an organisation of five chambers, and they really are there to try and tackle some of the issues that we've still got so Blag we're launching up with them as well but they're having, they're having a launch event on the 17th of February so I said I'd give them a free plug but they're there to um, assist with improving the understanding and availability within chambers of being open about quality and diversity issues doing individual work with chambers and staff and making sure that more is actively being done to change some of the ethoses within chambers who are perhaps not as inclusive as they could be and even if you are inclusive to make you aware of what more you could be doing um, so uh, there is still a lot happening and there's still a, a, a huge interest and a huge drive to see you know what more can be done out there at the bar um, so I just thought I'd make you aware of that um, so from my point of view I'm uh, a gay barrister I came out during pupillage and which may, some of you may think, well, that's kind of a brave thing to do. I'd like to say it was very brave, but I was very fortunate. I uh, attended a chambers where instantly I was accepted for who I am, and I, I'm very proud that I was able to do that, and that wasn't an issue for me. I didn't necessarily stand on the top of chambers and say, I'm gay, look at me, I'm the only gay in the, in, in the chambers. But nor did I hide it, or nor did I feel that it was something I had to hide. Uh, and to me, if there's one message that you get from me, I think it's so important to be yourself and to be authentic. It's only by doing that will other people uh, accept you and you find the place that you are meant to be in. Um, it's not always straightforward, I'm not pretending it is, but... For me, it worked, and for me, I, I was fortunate to be in an environment which um, it was not a problem, it was not discouraged in any way, and I was able to be open about it, and there were gay members of, of chambers. Now, only two or three of us, but it, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't a problem for me. So I hope if any of you are concerned about being a LGBT barrister at the bar, I can provide some reassurance that I didn't suffer any barriers in terms of obtaining my position or any concerns that I wouldn't be treated equally within my chambers. Sadly, I can't tell you that that's the case for every chambers. Um, there are different chambers who um, have different cultures, different ethoses, and I think when you, if you, any of you are interested in, in, in a career as a barrister, you might want to research where you go because unfortunately there are still cultures out there which are not going to be as accepting and I'd love to tell you that that's not the case um, but I would say from my personal experience um, it hasn't held me back uh, in the slightest um, there are members of BLAG who obviously come to me and say they've had different experiences um, People are often worried about coming out as gay or being openly gay in pupillage. Particularly in that pupillage year, you are trying to impress and you don't want to do anything or say anything that would make you stand out for any uh, reason in order to be different if you think that's going to be counted against you. 
Um, it's a personal decision. I can't tell you what to do and how you feel, but I would encourage you personally to be yourself and be authentic, and if that's the right place for you, you will be successful. But um, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing still in this day and age to think about. Um, there are members of BLAG who have come to me and said, um, when I uh, was in chambers, it was discovered that I was gay, and... Um, a group of chamber, members of chambers came to me and said, well, how do you want to handle this? Um, my, my stomach fell to the floor when I heard that. I thought, in this age that we are at, that's still, being, that's still some of the conversations that are happening in chambers. How, how do we handle this? Like it's something that, like a disease that we need to monitor or, or, or work with. So um, it, it does worry me that that is still happening. Uh, I think that's why organisations like ours and, and, and the work that we do, we, we try and highlight some of these issues. There are lots of barristers who um, haven't felt able to be out in chambers, um, sadly, although I hope that that's now changing. Um, but it, it, it's difficult, I do accept. Um, as I've said, research the chambers that you're looking at um, look at what kind of areas of law you might want to be interested in if you want to come to the bar. It is, unfortunately, there is a stereotype that if you go into the more liberal areas of law, human rights and family law, you will find greater representations of LGBT. Uh, but there are um, parts of BLAG which are uh, trying to organise more events for the Chancery Bar, Commercial Bar, so that there are, there's a greater face to LGBT groups within different areas of the law but you may find if you come to the bar as I did at family law that there are a greater amount of LGBT people, LGBT people within the bar but also in your instructing solicitors so without trying to stereotype or generalise too much there, there is, you will find that um, what I have always thought that um, is important as well and this is something we were discussing before we came out at our role models and I think that's something that the law particularly can do more um, with we have a few out gay judges not many two or three it's really about having those role models there so people know and it filters down that they there are successful high achieving people who are out and it hasn't um, uh, they may have had some difficulties, but it hasn't prevented them from being the, the, the success that they want to be. And unfortunately, I'm still in a position where I don't know any out women uh, senior judges. Uh, and I think that's something I would like to see change. Um, you may be aware, and only, only in 1991 were unmarried people allowed to become judges. So, you know, it's... <laughs> it's been a slow process. We're working on it. Um, <laughs> and it's quite shocking when you think that that's only 1991. But, um, you know, it's things like that that are part, important. And I know Interlaw did a report in relation to the judiciary, and I think there's now greater confidence that the Judicial Appointments Committee who appoint judges are, are, are it's a fairer system. But we've still got so much more to do. I mean, if you look at just the gender equality it, within barristers, um, I think 60%, more than 60% are still men. 
Um, but the new entrants, say the people who are now um, one to two uh, years call, it's more even in the gender balance as um, around 50% um, men and women. So I think it's one of these generational things that hopefully as more young people are coming to the bar, we will we'll get diversity through that, but it may be quite a, a slow process. But role models are important, and I, I hope there will be more of them for students and people like yourselves who might be interested in coming to the bar. Uh, what I think has helped is in terms of the Bar Council have really sh um, stri made strides in equality and diversity, making sure that there are clear rules. Each chamber has to have a fair recruitment policy. Each person on those recruitment committees has to have had fair recruitment training. Um, and we have to... Um, I'm um, sat and led a, an interview panel. So um, it's important, I think, that those changes are basic. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be a question that that should be the case. And I think that's important work that the Bar Standards Board have done. Um, but in other things, perhaps more that we can do, um, it, it's... To, to challenge some of these negative things that are happening, to make a, a greater awareness of it, to talk about it, um, uh, people to share their experiences. And um, there are perhaps some changes who think it's optional in terms of their recruitment policies. It, it's really not these days. Um, there needs to be greater, I believe, overview of, and statistics of, of who is being recruited and from where and how each chambers are doing individually. Whether chambers would want to sign up to that, I don't know, but I know many who are very proud of their diversity and quality and, and, would, and would be championing that. Um, but I, I think it's difficult within chambers. There are going to be different cultures and different, and different ethoses. And I think to be able to change the bar overnight, it's not going to happen. There has to be slow moves um, towards what we want to achieve. Um, so for me, what I say to you is don't be put off. If you want a career at the bar, you might have to, as we were saying, work harder, strive harder, but you will get there. Um, when you get there, whether you want to stay there is another issue. Um, certainly we have those moments. Well, I can't, I'm speaking for myself. I don't want to speak for these guys. But one of the benefits of being a barrister, I got offered a free pizza on the way back. Somebody obviously looked, thought I looked tired, hanging a um, wheelie case on my way back from court in Paddington. So that might entice you to become a barrister. But um, it, it's... I, I love the job because I'm very passionate about it. I care about clients. I want to achieve what I want to do. And I think if you're focused and you're driven enough and you want that career, um, then I think there's a place for you. Um, I think that's probably, without rambling, what I really wanted to get across. So hopefully there will be some time for some questions at the end if anyone's got any. Yes, there definitely will be. So thank you very much for that, Claire. And now on to Sarah. Thank you. Um, well, I'm delighted to be here this evening and to speak to you all. Um, I thought perhaps what I would do is just start out by sketching how, where, where, I, where I've come from in the sense of my career trajectory. Um, I now practice at Matrix in public law and human rights and spend most of my time within that sort of um, overview of doing um, education work, both schools and higher education. Um, I've been at Matrix since 2012. I started, I suppose, my first proper job, if you like, was I was a lecturer at King's College London 
um, from 2000 to 2003. And then in 2003, I was called to the bar, uh, and I did pupillage, and then subsequently became a tenant at a set called Four to Five Greys in Square, which at the time was a sort of general public law and planning set. Um, when I started to think about this talk, I tried to identify the ways in which I had experienced barriers to my career being um, a gay woman. And I suppose somewhat to my surprise, startlement even, um, I found it very difficult to identify any. And I thought at first perhaps I had found one. I could remember one particularly drunken incident by a clerk from a clerk in my former set of chambers who propositioned my now partner by saying if she ever got fed up with being a lesbian, he'd be happy to oblige. But then I remembered that he was actually an equal opportunities harasser because he did exactly the same thing to somebody else's so it's a straight male colleague's girlfriend the following year. So I wasn't entirely sure I could <laughs> pin that down to, to my sexuality. Yeah. Um, he was just an asshole. He was just an asshole. <laughs> 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 but I find this conclusion pretty troubling because, to be honest with you, I've sat through lots of lectures in my time where senior women at the bar have swore blind that they've never faced any barriers to being um, barriers in their career for being a woman. And I've always sat there and thought to myself, she's got false consciousness. She doesn't understand. She doesn't see what's in front of her. And so I thought, perhaps I've got false consciousness about my sexual orientation. So I didn't like that idea very much, as you can imagine. So then I thought, well, perhaps I've just been lucky. Perhaps I've just been extraordinarily lucky because there's lots of colleagues and um, friends who have been less lucky than me. But I think thinking it through a little further, I thought that perhaps actually I haven't been lucky. And, and, and I'll explain why. I think there are very good reasons why I haven't experienced any particular barriers. Um, my first two jobs were in relatively conservative organisations. Um, and I'm not for the avoidance of any doubt, including Matrix in that, for obvious reasons. Um, yet in both, I was able to be out, even 2000, 2003, even during pupillage. Um, to put that in context, when I became a lecturer, there was nothing to prevent an employer from subjecting an employee to uh, detriment on the grounds of his or her sexual orientation. Um, that came in 2003. And indeed, all of my colleagues and friends from university who started their traineeships at the same time, Magic Circle firms, and, and um, pretty much all of my friends actually did traineeships in Magic Circle firms in, in the early part of that decade, nearly all of them went back into the closet because they felt, with actually some quite good objective justification, that being out would have a negative impact on, on their progression. Um, and indeed, I'd sort of forgotten about this and that I was thinking back, but when I first came to London in about 2000, I was actually the trustee of an organisation called the Lesbian, Lesbian and Gay Employment Rights, who had the somewhat unfortunate acronym LAGA, which <laughs> bizarrely they actually deployed. Um, and their mission, their mission statement was to um, provide uh, employment advice representation to lesbian and gay employees. But the way they did that, which I think is very interesting, is that if a lesbian employee rang up and needed some help, she would be assigned to a, a lesbian caseworker. And if a gay man rang up and wanted help, he'd be assigned to a gay man, gay male caseworker. Um, they didn't provide representation for straight people or indeed employ straight people. Um, of course, on the basis that at the time there wasn't any particular problem with with not doing so, given that you could hire or fire gay people at will, you could equally hire or fire straight people at will. Um, and there didn't seem anything particularly startling about that at the time, the idea that actually you would need somebody of the same sexual orientation to help you out, because a straight representative wouldn't actually understand your particular difficulties or, or, or particular issues with your employer. That would seem like a slightly surprising proposition these days, but back in 2000 there didn't seem anything particularly odd about that. 
But anyway, going back to, to me and, and why I say I wasn't just lucky, I think the, the simple answer is that in both organisations, both in, in, in King's and at Four to Five, there was a very senior out gay man. Uh, and in both places, um, uh, at King's, the particular individual I have in mind was very respected for both his research but also very popular and, and well-respected. Ditto at Fortify, there was a senior gay man who was very respected as a barrister but also very popular as an individual. Uh, and in respect of both places, what they made abundantly clear was that there wasn't any anomaly between being uh, a gay, gay, gay professional uh, and being um, a good barrister uh, and being gay and indeed being popular amongst one's colleagues. Um, and I, so I start really with that story, I suppose, for a number of reasons. First of all, I think, it, I think what I want to emphasise, like Claire, actually, that um, I, I have generally found the, uh, my career at the bar to be a very positive one. Um, and I haven't, you know, I, well, I could talk to you about sexism, but that's a whole other story. As far as sexual orientation, there I don't have false consciousness. As far as, <laughs> yes. as, far as sexual orientation is concerned, I really, I really do struggle to identify um, particular barriers. Um, but I think the second reason I raise it is because, I, for me, it just underscores the absolute critical importance of senior people in an organisation being out. They set the tone, they make it okay for the junior people who are less confident and have less of a firm place within the organisation um, to be out. What I wanted to move on to then, um, I suppose it's just a couple of things. I wanted to talk a little bit about being out, because I do think, when I say I haven't had any barriers or problems. I suppose the one consistent theme that has um, caused uh, thoughtfulness, if I can put it like that, or, or issues or slight, slight momentary difficulties is, is, is issues around being out, when it's okay to be out, what to say and what not to say, but also what one does about that. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of a pretty trite thing to say, isn't it, that coming out is, a, is, a, is an ongoing process in the sense that one doesn't do it once and for all. It's a sort of constant daily, actually, often, um, thing that one has to do. Um, and there's obviously the sort of initial personal coming out. Then there's the situation when you're at work, how you come out to your colleagues. Um, and that, I think, is particularly difficult for junior people in chambers and in particular for pupils because, as, again, as Claire said, as a pupil, you're in this sort of very contingent position. You're in a year-long um, interview. Whether or not you actually get taken on does depend to a large extent on a sort of usually completely unobvious set of factors, quite amorphous in their nature. It doesn't necessarily mean just being a good barrister. There's sort of getting on with people. And there's a good reason for that, actually, looking at the other, set, other side of the scale. When you're looking, when we're looking at pupils and saying, do we want to recruit them? Once they're in, it's almost impossible to get them out. So you're actually looking at people as future colleagues for the rest of their lives. Now, of course, that can be very problematic for people who aren't, who don't fit with the sort of ethos of the organisation. Um, but what about even if you're confidently and happily out with your colleagues, what about clients? What even about judges? I once spent um, uh, a whole evening at a chambers party, sat next to a court of appeal judge whose opening gambit to me was, where's your husband this evening? Um, what do you say? What do you do? Um, <coughs> And I think, in fact, you know, and, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody. I gave a talk not so long ago to Lincoln's Inn and afterwards sat at the sort of benches table 
um, sat next to somebody and I was chatting away. He was wearing a wedding ring. He was talking at circuit judge saying he's about to retire. I said, oh, you know, what's your wife think about your retirement? He said, oh, you mean my husband? At which point I was just completely mortified. You know, by the time I'd blushed and explained how hilarious the whole situation was. You know, we were sort of... <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 I see that being out uh, and all the rest of it does result of navigating those kinds of... of um, Conversation, but I think coming back to clients, clients are particularly difficult because there's a sort of conventional wisdom that says it's not terribly appropriate to talk about your personal life with your clients. But equally, conventional wisdom also says in order for clients to be good clients, you need to have a personal relationship with them. And it's impossible really to do the latter without some of the former. Um, For example, because my practice is so glamorous, I spent Friday in Huddersfield, and we spent a very large amount of time sat in the county court outside of court with my clients. You cannot spend a whole day in a waiting room outside court with some people and not discuss anything at all about your personal life. You'd look weird, frankly, (laughs) and it would be almost impossible to avoid the the linguistic contortions and all the rest of it. It would be very difficult. Um, Social events, where you go and market, you know, god-awful things that you have to do where you go and stand with a glass of wine and have to talk to people you've never met before. What do you talk about? Of course you have to talk about your personal life. Otherwise, I, mean, I don't mean in a sort of inappropriate way, but it's impossible. It, trust me, it is almost impossible to meet clients and talk to them for any length of time without, without mentioning something about yourself. It's very difficult. Um, but I think outness has also, I suppose, I've found particularly interesting in the last few years. I have two children. My oldest is four, my youngest is one. Um, and uh, this is relevant to what I'm about to say. Um, my partner had our first, I had our second, so slightly different circumstances in which they were conceived. One of the things that I have found completely fascinating is how having children just magnifies your outness by about 100%. Um, that happens in your personal life because, so for example, my, my daughter will loudly correct any stranger who asks about her daddy by saying, oh, I've got two mummies, fact, like, what's your problem? Um, <laughs> Or they'll have really loud tantrums in supermarkets and say things like, no, not you, I want my other mummy, when you try to get the banana or whatever it is. And so, but the point is, it's absolutely critical that my children don't think for one moment that there is anything odd, weird, or problematic about their parentage. So as a result, you have to back them up constantly and consistently, even when you think, oh, God, do we really have to have this conversation here? in, you know, far-flung Cornwall in a small restaurant with the entire village looking on. It's, but you have to do it. You have to do it. And that commitment, I think, to being out in front of your children inevitably spills over into your professional life. Um, but I think also the other thing is that even if I wasn't, I suppose, personally committed to that, there are some practical ways in which having children means that you sort of end up coming out, even if you didn't necessarily want to. So, for example, with our first... So I wasn't pregnant, but I had a period of uh, leave immediately afterwards and I had solicitors who were completely bemused by the fact that I had a child and yet apparently had never been pregnant and of course I had to explain how that had come to pass Um, and I also remember one particular notable time when I had a a trial about four weeks after we'd had my daughter and I had a solicitor who said to me how do you look so thin when you've just had a baby it's like well you know (laughs) I could say (laughs) So then, you know, you have to explain. And then ditto, when I was, when I was pregnant, again, you fend up lots of interesting questions about how your husband feels about this <laughs> or that. And the other thing, for those of you who don't have children, people who have children are obsessed by childcare arrangements, completely obsessed <laughs> by childcare arrangements. So, again, 
people are fascinated. So you have a child. How does your childcare work? And so you can't, again, you can't really explain how your childcare works without explaining that your partner is there for a certain amount of the time. Unless you want to be completely gender neutral endlessly about that, it just has to come out. So I think having children has been a very interesting process for me as to how I engage with my clients and how inevitably you end up talking about it. So anyway, what, what suggestions do I have? Um, I suppose very quickly, so I think I'm probably talking. I, have, I think I have sort of six suggestions. I think, first of all, organisations have a responsibility to make sure that they create an atmosphere in which people feel that they can come out. Um, my chamber's matrix was the first chamber's, so they tell me, I'd be happy to correct if I'm wrong, um, to join the Stonewall Diversity Champions Programme. And that's a programme that's run by Stonewall to help employers develop inclusive workplace cultures. So what do they do? So they have, so for example, we have a Stonewall Diversity Champion who is um, an out gay man. He's a member of our senior management team. His picture is on the website as being um, the Diversity Champion. Um, we promote jobs on, so jobs for staff are on Stonewall Careers website. Um, we're a member of Stonewall and we have that on the website. So if you go to our recruitment page, there's a great big flashing logo that says that we're a member of Stonewall. And of course, what that means is that when people come to apply for those jobs, they immediately see that this might be a place that's inclusive of gay people. Um, what else do we do? Um, attend Stonewall events and then come back and talk to members of staff about it. Um, and the other thing that we've done um, this year, and I understand we're going to roll out every year, is that we've insisted that everybody in chambers undergoes um, training on subconscious bias. So not just your kind of bog-standard, bar-standard board equality university training, which we all have to do, actually, if we're going to recruit, but more than that, actually really trying to sort of drill down into um, you know, what it is that we're doing, whether we're doing it well. Um, I think there are big advantages, actually, for chambers who get this right. I mean, it, it works both ways. It's not just the, to the advantage of the LGBT... Yeah. I knew I was going to get that wrong at least <laughs> once tonight. Um, it's not just to, 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 to the individual's advantage. It's also to the advantage of chambers. Um, if you get it right, gay people want to work there, and, and those who do want to stay. And, you know, the research talks about having a sense of loyalty to chambers who get this stuff right, or workplaces that get that right. Um, but I think also the other thing to mention is that increasingly, certainly when we tender for work, so for example, if local authorities are putting out a tender for, for, for services for us to provide representation and advice, we have to show them that we have not just equality and diversity um, procedures in place, but that we actually implement them and we take the stuff seriously. So again, there's a commercial value to it beyond just because it's the right thing to do. Um, second, having strong... Um, uh, gay networks, both within the organisation but between the, the organisation. I too was also asked to make a plug for, for Freebar. So, um, <laughs> second plug for Freebar. Um, um, the, the, the third thing I think I wanted to mention too was mentoring. And I think certainly I've noticed, I, I've been fortunate enough since I, really since I came to Matrix to acquire a couple of um, senior women um, as mentors. And they do some really, I suppose, subtle but you know, really vital stuff. So they pull you in on junior in good cases, um, recommend you for speaking and marketing gigs, big you up to their solicitors. That's really important, that kind of soft stuff. Um, suggesting you for briefs that they can't do themselves and writing you references for things that go beyond just a sort of formulaic, this person's all right sort of thing. Um, I can't really emphasise how important that is. Now, I think, you know, mentors... 
it isn't a peculiarly um, LGBT problem. If I was talking about life at the bar as a woman, I would be saying precisely the same thing, and I would talk about the difficulty of obtaining patrons or mentors that, when actually a lot of the senior people at the bar are um, straight white, white men, and how difficult it is to acquire mentors in those circumstances. But I think, I, I don't think for a moment that you have to have a mentor who is also gay. That, that's not critical at all. Neither of my mentors are, in fact, both are straight women. But I think the point is that particularly when you're in a minority group, mentors give you that extra push to help your career progress. Um, the fourth thing I wanted to say is that I think there are some commercial advantages in being out for yourself, not just for Chambers, but for yourself. I have definitely got work myself because of connect- connections I have made through gay networks or through gay colleagues. Um, I have a very good friend who spends large amounts of her time, probably pays most of her mortgage, through acting for warring lesbian couples who are basically engaged in custody battles. And she gets that work because of her sexual orientation. Did I know another another colleague who um, does immigration work almost exclusively, again, for for, um, LGBT clients? Finally, and I suppose just to return to my sort of opening theme, I think there is really a big responsibility on senior people in organisations to be out. Um, I know that might be a little bit more controversial, but I I, I do find myself slightly impatient with um, senior people who don't feel able to be open. Because as I say, openness by senior people is the only way actually that organisational change happens, and outness really begets outness. If you're, you, know, you can't expect the junior people in the organisation to change, uh, change the way the organisation feels or to push for inclusion. It has to come from the top. So thank you. That's all I wanted to say. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Sarah. And then our final speaker before we take questions, uh, Daniel, over to you. Okay, great. Um, great. Well, thank you for having me here today. Um, so I'm Daniel Winterfeld. I, my day job is working at CMS um, here in London. I'm the head of international capital markets. I'm a U.S. securities lawyer. Um, so I do um, IPOs, debt offerings, um, uh, and advise. My clients are a mixture of corporates and investment banks. Um, and I also work for the London Stock Exchange. So um, not the LSE, the LSEG. Um, I like to correct people on that. <laughs> it's also a trademark issue. LSE is the London School of Economics. <laughs> so um, I, um, I'm also the diversity inclusion partner for my firm. So I've been at CMS now for, it's my fifth anniversary this week. So wish me happy anniversary. Um, I've worked at four law firms in London. Um, and prior to that, I started my career. I went to law school at Fordham in New York, where I also did, studied European law at the same time as I got my law degree. Um, and I did a stage at the European Court. Um, so I worked for two years on Wall Street and then came to London in 2000. Um, the difference between New York and London at that time was pretty enormous. I was working at a major firm on Wall Street. We had out partners. Um, you had domestic partner benefits, so they replicated. So while there were no legal rights or civil partnerships, what you could do, what they, what they, what companies could do, was give you those benefits. So they would replicate insurance. They would replicate all those benefits because they realized that in order to get talent, they needed to be giving and treating people the same way. So in the UK, those things came when the law changed, and then those other things then followed. So when I moved here and I arrived and said to my firm, what are your domestic partner benefits? HR said, what is that? And I said, domestic partners. 
And they said, we don't know what that is. I said, that's like when a guy lives with a guy or a girl lives with a girl. And they're like, we don't know anything about that. we got to call New York. So, um, you know, and this is a great firm, but they just, it was we were at a really different place in, in London at that time 15 years ago. Um, after working at one firm where I was in an office of 500 people, and I was one of the only, I was the only out lawyer, and most of the time I was there the only out person. I did have like a friend in the mailroom who came out and was there for a while, so that was great. And then my next firm I worked at was in another office of 500 people, and I was the only out attorney. I also didn't know in my personal life any out professionals or almost none. I knew no lawyers. I knew no partners at law firms. It's very difficult when you don't have role models. Um, I didn't think that I had a career. I actually felt like I was lucky to have a job. I would pretty much do anything the firm asked me to do because really my view was I was just lucky to be employed. I didn't have a goal of being a partner because I didn't think you could be a partner and be out. And I've been out my whole career, so I I left that out. So I've been out since I was in university. I came out my junior year. Um, so I was out all through law school, all through my career in working. Um, and kind of once you're out, you don't really get to go back, I don't think. And the interesting thing is I also have had colleagues who have been closeted, but really the only person who thought, who didn't know they were gay was themselves. Because it's that story that you were talking about. Yes, you may be able to go to a job interview and not mention that you're gay, and you might be able to get through it and get hired and get employed, but eventually, how, many, how long can you play pronoun games? How long can you not talk about your personal life with your coworkers until people determine you that you're either completely weird or you have a secret? And, you know, people know. So it's interesting that everyone almost... Almost everyone, I think of one coworker who I actually found out later was gay who I had no idea, but everyone I've ever worked with, everybody knew and everybody talks about it and everybody, the only person who's in the closet is that person. And it really, I think, holds career, their careers back. And um, I even had a client once asked to stop working with a particular partner because she said, this person, I know that he's gay, I see him out with his partner, he continues to lie to me about having a partner, and... I'm really uncomfortable with that. And at the end of the day, the relationship between clients is about trust. And she's saying, what does that say about me? Does this person think that I'm a bigot or that if they come out to me that it's going to be a problem for me? And this person knows I'm, like, really close to you. So the whole thing was very strange, but really it broke down the relationship between the client and the partner. Look, we're a big firm, so it's also not the end of the world because there's lots of other lawyers who can work with that particular client. But it actually was something that held that person back. Um, so I think it's interesting. People focus on the downsides of being out, but there's a lot of downsides to being in, and there's obviously lots of studies about what happens even to the people who can completely pass. There's lots of studies about passing, and there's interesting studies as well by analogy of the African-American community in the U.S. of people who can pass and the psychological damage that it does. Now, the upsides of being out, I think, are enormous. So it's really, really important, I think, to, to be out. Um, But having had the experiences that I had and not having role models and not knowing senior people, I then joined um, Simmons & Simmons in 2008 and started going. They were members of the Stonewall um, Workplace Program. There were only three firms that were members of the program at the time. They participated in the index, but none of them were ranked. Um, shortly after joining, I went, to, I went to seminars. I learned that the legal sector was second from the bottom, performing just above healthcare. And we all know what a wonderful record healthcare has on workplace equality, since I think they have the largest, um, the largest claim ever won by anyone in discrimination was against the NHS. So, you know, that's not, not great company to be in. Um, the, um, so, 
uh, I thought, what are we going to do about this? And at that point, I'd been running for two years an organization which does not have a great title, but it's called the Forum for U.S. Securities Lawyers in London. And it was a forum to bring people together to talk about U.S. securities issues that impacted London. So we brought together the, you know, people like the London Stock Exchange, intermediaries, banks, lawyers, to talk about particular issues. So I kind of knew how to run an interorganizational network. And I thought, well, why aren't we doing this for LGBT in law? If there's a sector-wide program, I can sit at Simmons & Simmons and make it the best place in the world for gay people to work, but I myself had already been at three firms in London. I saw my people moving from firms to clients. If you're not going to do something that impacts the sector, there's no way to fix the problem individually within one place. So um, I also realized at that point that the real power to bring people together as well would be clients. So a big impact and a big influence on me was reading an article in The Lawyer where J.P. Morgan, and particularly Tim Hales, who was a very out and still is a very out um, assistant general counsel and a managing director, worked with J.P. Morgan to call in their top 10 billing law firms, and they made a senior partner, a managing partner from those firms, do a half-day seminar with Stonewall. And the message in the article on the cover of The Lawyer was that they had a choice of firms that they worked with, and that LGBT equality was incredibly important to J.P. Morgan. And if you want to continue to be one of those firms they chose, you needed to take this issue seriously. And that was a big moment for me in my career, because when I'd been doing a lot of work for J.P. Morgan at that time. And when I, the firm I was at had no, no diversity committee representative in the London office. There was no real policy, um, and there was nothing going on. So I put this article in front of the partner I'd been working with um, and said, this is something I think we need to be thinking about. Look how much work we do with J.P. Morgan. Um, and it was the first time in my life that really being openly gay and my career actually came together. So that article, and then you know when I, when I went to Simmons & Simmons, the fact that they were one of three firms with an LGBT network and were monitoring sexual orientation was a big part of my decision. I thought I want to go somewhere where it's not just that it's okay to be out, but it's actually welcomed and the firm is doing something formal about it. Um, now, as, we, as you said eight years later, we have um, 12 law firms in the top 100 employers, um, we are the number one sector, so we went from being second from the bottom to the top. Over 45 firms participate in the Stonewall Work Equality Index, um, and there's been a complete um, shift, but it doesn't mean there's not a lot more work to do. And the real focus and the real issue is about career advancement, and that's what we're here to talk about today. If you look at numbers, and this is a concern that I had, you, you know, we started recruiting women at equal numbers 15 years ago, more than that at most major firms. If you look now, it's 60 to 70% women coming in at the entry level as um, in law firms, and yet partnerships still are around 20%, 22% on the average women. So it doesn't work that you recruit the people in and then you just sit and wait and they're all gonna move up the chain. Um, and there's two problems. It's promotion and advancement, but it's also lateral hires. It's really important when, people, when you hire laterally that you make sure you have diverse lists and that you're looking at diverse recruitment. Um, when I, so we founded Interlaw eight years ago. Interlaw does monthly meetings. We create that space for networking that Claire talked about that's so important. We also do research. So we did a 2009 report we co-wrote with the Law Society on barriers to the profession for, L, um, for LGB solicitors. Um, we then followed that on with barriers to the judiciary, which we wrote on our own. Um, and um, I published with Les Moran and with Stephen Ward, my co-chair. Um, 
And then the next thing we looked at was that career progression. So if you look at those barriers reports we worked on in 2009, we co-wrote one on LGB solicitors. At the same time, the Law Society published one on gender and another one on um, ethnic minority solicitors. And I read all three of those reports, and they're all still there on the website. I encourage you guys to look at them. Um, They all said the same thing to me. I read similar stories, and up to that point, I'd been kind of sold the Bill of Rights that all these strands are so different. The gender issue is so completely different because women have maternity leave and men don't, and this, you know, and I, and I read these reports and I thought, all I read is people saying, I'm treated differently and things are less fair for me. Um, so we looked, did a career progression report in 2012. We surveyed almost 2,000 people in the legal sector. We asked them a mixture of questions that were, and here it is, those of you on the podcast. You can find it on our website, um, interlawdiversityforum.org. So it's called the Career Progression Report. It was published in 2012. And basically, the finding was, as we said earlier, straight, white, elite, educated men make the most money and think everything is the fairest in the profession. (laughs) The more you diverge from that, the less money you earn and the less fair you think things are. So literally, women... White women earn less than white men and think things are less fair when you look at things like promotion and advancement, transparency, work allocation. But then women of color earn even less and think things are even less fair. So the great thing about this report is that it painted a very clear picture of what our problem was. And it painted a clear picture that um, we're not going to solve this by looking at one strand in particular. And we all have multiple identities. So it's really clear, you know, you're, you're, you can be a woman, and you can be a lesbian, and you can be a mother, and you can be from an ethnic minority group, and you can be from a religious minority group, and you can, you know, from, have a different nationality. We all have complex multiple identities, but we do know that there's one group that does a lot better than everybody else. In order to fix that problem, you have to change um, the culture of the, of the organizations. You have to really work on changing management and look at promotion and advancement, look at unconscious bias. And our third recommendation in the report was looking at social mobility. Because if you look within the UK, it's shocking. It's not a question of whether you went to a Russell group or not, if you earn a lot of money. It's basically, did you go to Oxford or Cambridge? Because the, they absolutely dominated all the top earners. And if you went to any other university, you were likely to be in the bottom 50% of, universe, of earners. So there's a real issue in line social mobility, and that impacts um, not only looking at ethnic minority groups, but it has an impact on LGBT, and it also has an impact on gender, our research showed. So it's really important to get that right. And if you look at the recruitment at firms, many firms only recruit from 12 to 15 universities. And then they complain, we can't find ethnic minority candidates, we can't find good LGBT candidates. Well, you know... How far away is the University of Westminster, where Professor Lisa Webley teaches, who sits with me on the Law Society Equality and Diversity Forum, and 70% of her students are ethnic minorities, and yet most major firms don't even recruit from them. And they say, well, we can't afford it, we can't get there. I mean, I don't know, it's like 10 pounds to get there in a cab from the city. So I don't know, I'll give every major firm 20 pounds, and they can you know, take a round trip and see a few students. Um, so that's something really, we really need to work on. Um, what have we been doing in Interlaw to do that? We create spaces where we have, where we continue to do research. We're going to be updating the career progression report for 2016. We've created a project called the Apollo Project because we realized that Diversity 101 isn't working. So in the 2012 research, Baroness Scotland, um, who's in the House of Lords, who was just elected, 
Secretary General of the Commonwealth um, and was the former Attorney General under Gordon Brown. And she kind of said in 2012, it's kind of depressing looking at this report and seeing how far we haven't come. And there's really a clear message that what we're doing isn't enough. Having networks, having the training that we're having, it's not having an impact to change the view of the profession at the top. So we need to do things differently. Um, the Apollo Project is something the interlaw does in conjunction with the Financial Times. You can check out the website. Um, but the Apollo Project gathers case studies where people fill out simple thousand-page submissions that say, what is your business case? What have you done? And show us evidence that it's actually changed or moved your culture. Um, so that's a great way to give tools to management. I, I was at a roundtable with senior partners and managing partners from major firms at the Financial Times when I came up with the idea to do this because we ended up talking at this roundtable for winners of the Innovative Lawyer Awards. Half the talk was about talent management. And the clear thing I got out of it was they had no idea what to do to change things. One senior partner from a major law firm even said, we don't know what to do about the senior women. They just keep leaving and we can't chain them to their desks. So probably not the best solution. So we thought, let's figure out a way to put forward really innovative things. So one of my clients, National Grid, has a really amazing performance program called P4G Performance, where they completely changed how they rewarded management. So half of the review is about numbers, hard numbers, deliverables, and, and hard business. The other half of the review is all about people data. So it's what does your staff attitude survey look like for people who report to you versus the rest of the business? What does your maternity return rates look like? All of that is 50% of your review, and only pr certain promotions and advancements can be unlocked if you perform well there. And the other way they like, they like to talk about that 50% is, do you leave a wake of destruction in your path? And this is often the problem at law firms. People are big rainmakers, big earners. It's like, oh, well, he's down the hall, and he might get drunk and say inappropriate things to LGBT people or grow up a lady, but what are we going to do? He bills five million pounds every year. You know, it's like, what are you going to do? Well, the answer is fire him. Um, so um, the Apollo Project is a great way to fix problems before you fire them. So there were 10 winners last year and five winners this year. They're all on the website. It's completely transparent. The winning submissions are completely published so people can replicate them and look at them. Because even when people are rewarded for great projects, it's usually X won an award, they have this project, and then you never hear any details or what to do. This is a place for management to go to be inspired to how to bring about that change. And the last thing we've been doing is looking at role models and sponsors and saying it's incredibly important we bring them forward. So we teamed up with photographer Thomas Knights, who did a project called Red Hot, where he rebranded the ginger male. I see a few people nodding. Um, Thomas is incredibly talented. We've been taking portraits of LGBT role models and straight allies. We've done portraits in LA, New York, London. Uh, Lisa Power, who was the head of policy for 17 years at the Terrence Higgins Trust, one of the founders of Stonewall, and just generally a lesbian icon, is writing up all of our profiles. And this is an ongoing project um, that allows us also to look at multiple identities. So we did an entire event um, at Pride last year looking at transgender and exploring the T, where we did 15 new portraits. So it's something we're going to continue working on, looking at multiple identities and putting forward both LGBT and straight ally role models to not only inspire young people to pick professions, whatever it is they want, that they can go to the top, but also to target young professionals and students to say, you can be successful. So 
you're not sitting like me in an office thinking, oh, I'm just lucky to be here and I have no <coughs> aspirations to be a partner because I don't think gay people can be partners. It's saying you can go to the absolute top of your profession. So I think that's it. That's my, I'm in overtime, didn't I? No, 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 that's, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. So thank you very much for that, Daniel. Um, and thank you as well to Sarah and Claire. So we have about half an hour, 35 minutes now to open up questions to the floor for anything that people have. I mean, I think that overall we've had a remarkably optimistic portrait of um, the profession, not saying that uh, there isn't a lot of work to be done, but, but uh, you know, a lot of encouragement for people to be coming out and so on. I do wonder partly how much of that is a function of the fact that everyone on the stage is quite successful in their profession. There's, there's sort of a, a self-generating element there. Um, and also a bit of a function of who is willing to speak, you know, the ones who... I'm all worried about coming out and so on, aren't likely to get up on stage and announce it in a podcast uh, before thousands of people. Um, but so for that reason, I, mean, I very much encourage any questions from the floor, and particularly any that might speak to uh, any of these other kind of elements of experience, of whether they might have had any kind of issues in the profession. I mean, I can quickly say, yep. that look at the studies, because there's clearly a lot of negative examples of bad things that have happened. And I agree with you. Often when people get up on the stage, there's one person in particular who loves to get up on stage and say, I've never had an issue. I've never had a problem. Now, these people have both said that, but then they both said, but other people have. And it's really, really important that you don't get up there and say, I've never had a problem. Because then if you say that and you don't follow it up with, but others have and others do... What you're telling someone in the audience who's sitting there and thinking is that they're the problem. So their problems are out there. If you look at the studies, there have been, there's been active discrimination. There are stories in our 2009 study of, of a senior partner literally harassing a trainee who came out to the point where he had to quit his firm and leave his job. Um, there, there are experiences. It's a small percentage, but then there's that kind of unconscious bias, conscious bias that's much more subtle, how work is allocated, um, you know, how... You know, treatments for promotions and advancement, those are things that are harder to quantify, but people kind of know when they're having it. So you aren't crazy if you think you're being treated fairly or differently. And you're really correct to point out that the problem we have is when you look at the diverse people who are at the top or who are successful, they're usually exceptional. And we'll know we have full equality when we have average diverse people, right? Because if you're sitting at a table, and I say this to my partners, if you're sitting at a table and if we think, you know, if 70% of our partnership is men and 30% is women, we have like 32% women, 30% women, and we're the highest law firm in the city. Yeah. And you think talent's equally divided and we're recruiting 60 to 70% women in at the trainee level, that wouldn't tell us that if we started putting a quota in place, we'd suddenly have underqualified women. What it tells us is we should be worried about having underqualified men in our partnership and that we're not capturing the talent. So there, it, it is a huge issue. And, and you're right about, you know, these, you sit with these women, like, they're so articulate, they're so bright, they're so exceptional. You look at someone like Baroness Scotland and, you know, the, her background, but, you know, and the stories that she tells, she was told, you'll never get silk, you're never going to become a barrister. You should hang your hat up. You should leave. This is not a place for a woman of color. This is not a place for a woman more or less than a woman of color. You should just go home. And she overcame it. And the really important thing about success is success doesn't mean you never had failure. You have failures every day. You have challenges every day. People who are successful overcome them and push through them. Mm. I wonder if, if I could maybe ask someone on the panel to just <coughs> elaborate on something to do with that, which is specifically the role of sexual orientation in this. I mean, I remember... So I used to work at a law firm many years ago, um, and I remember talking to more senior um, partners at the time, several of whom weren't out. Um, well, they weren't sort of out generally, but people knew 
that they were gay, and they would get um, basically the worst workloads, sort of the stuff that would be guaranteed to take them through the weekend, that would be all through the evenings, all the sort of a lot of the busy work rather than a lot of the sort of more interesting strategic work, partly on the grounds that, oh, well, you're gay, so you're unlikely to have a stable relationship. Even if you've been in one for the last 15 years, we're just going to assume that you don't have one. You're unlikely to have children. Even if you have them, we're probably just going to quietly ignore that. And so this sort of an assumption that certain types of work could be thrown at the people who weren't going to have family commitments. Do you, I mean, is that still something that you kind of see around at all these days? Um, I, I, at the bar, I think we're getting better. I can't say that there aren't issues... Um, part of the, of the quality and diversity officer and there's a data officer now within chambers you act, chambers actively have to look at and review allocation of unallocated work and that's one of the things we've got to look at I don't know whether there is enough information and enough overview yet about what's going on um, I, I haven't personally had an issue where I feel I'm getting dumped on because at the bar everyone gets dumped on last minute but I don't know more about law firms um, but um, I, I think, particularly, I can speak for my chambers. There's there's lots of women. There's lots of um, gay people. There's lots of um, men who have children. And I think I'm lucky to be in a chambers which understands people who have families. They understand the pressures. And I think it's about you taking charge as well and, and managing your your diary and saying what you know what you will do and what you you don't. But I understand when you're in working there, there are pressures to to say yes to everything, and probably I said yes more when I was younger. And I think you come to know what you can and you can't do, and what you're willing to accept and what you don't, and what you won't. And you have to be open about that, otherwise, um, you know, you're, you're going to keep going on and being resentful. You need to be able to have that relationship with your clerks and say, you know, th- this is not acceptable, or I can do this, and or I can't do that. Um, but. Yeah, that would be my <laughs> view. Funny enough, I, it's funny that you should say that because I actually had a conversation with a colleague who is in-house at a regulator over the weekend who was complaining that he always got allocated Christmas as a gay man, that he was, it was assumed that he wouldn't have any particular need to be somewhere other than in work, presumably. Um, so I, to answer your question, I don't think it's a, a completely a problem of the past. Um, certainly at the bar... Um, I think some chambers are much better than others at understanding um, work-life balance. Um, and it's, it's a different thing at the bar in many ways because to some extent it is, it is in your own hands. Um, on the other hand, as a litigator, you get dumped on. So, for example, after I leave here tonight, I have to go home and write some submissions up because I got told at 4 o'clock today that, in fact, the thing that I thought I had until Friday to do <laughs> is now necessarily tomorrow morning. There's not much you can do about that, actually. That's just... That's not even the client, that's the court, and you have to respond to that. Um, so it is a little bit more in your own hands when you're at the bar because you're self-employed and you can say yes and no. But it does depend on the litigation process. Unfortunately, litigation is not always in your hands, and I think also it does depend on your chambers. In some chambers, there's an expectation that you will say yes to every single thing and that there isn't actually an option to say no, again, particularly when you're very junior. Um, and there isn't a sort of an opt-out clause. Other questions, yes? Uh, so we could just wait, bring a, a microphone <coughs> around to this gentleman here at the front. We could just identify yourself for the uh, podcast purposes. Hello, uh, my name is Martin Nelson. I uh, work with the government. But um, 
I wonder if any of the panel have any particular views about communications of firms and of chambers with clients in a very direct way to discuss with them what their views are about LGBT equality and issues and sort of demystifying some of the communications that people have as lawyers about what it is that their clients want. When I was working in um, a legal advice centre, the worst case of LGBT discrimination that I dealt with was all explained by the firm on the basis that they didn't feel as though they could place this particular person in front of clients because that person would be distracting or would be not businesslike. Uh, and, it was, and it certainly came down because that firm had a very clear idea of what, their, what they wanted their employees in meetings to look like. And this person who came across slightly more obviously as gay than perhaps other LGBT people in the firm didn't fit into that niche. Now, I'm, I'm relatively sure that had I have gone, been able to go to those clients, those clients might not necessarily have thought that. It seems to me there's a very reactive sense of what your clients want and a lot of myths about what your clients want until you create the structures to be able to talk to your clients and find out what they actually want. I was wondering if the panel had any thoughts about that. I mean, from, a, from, from my perspective, as I said, you know, all my work has been really client-driven. I mean, if, I, if Tim Hales hadn't, and J.P. Morgan hadn't come out and taken that stance, I hadn't read that article, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today, and I don't know what my career would have looked like. But it had a huge impact, and I've always used clients in interlaw as a way to get law firms engaged. Um, I mean, there's even a firm where the CFO refused to write a check to launch an LGBT network. And we actually had to have the client pick up the phone and call the firm and remind them that there were five million reasons why they should sign the check to the LGBT network. And funnily enough, the check was signed. Um, but also, um, you, you know, I like to use it as a positive way. So it's, for us, it's, it's really become a source of collaboration. When you're talking about the issues that we talk about, about talent management, about work allocation, about promotion and advancement of talent, these are issues that clients have as well. So it's, it's, it's a discussion that clients want to have with us. It is also a lever internally. You know, there's why do you do diversity and inclusion? Why do you support LGBT? Well, hopefully because, A, it's the right thing to do. Um, but, B, there's a business case. And... Um, and C, it's important to clients. And those are three different levers you can use, and those different levers will, will impact and work differently with different people within your firm, and they resonate. So you have to kind of use all three. And we at CMS have commissioned a report with our clients where we just went and talked to them. We did a survey with about 40 of them, and then we did interviews with about six of our key clients saying, is this important to you or not? And we actually recently did an Acritas survey internally asking our firm whether diversity and inclusion was important, and over 90% of the people who responded said it was very important or important to our firm's business. Um, so... Um, where we try and collect data and we just actively have ongoing conversations. I meet quarterly with our key clients where this impacts them. There's a whole group of clients where this, it might not be something that's important to them or be a key issue. I'm not saying it, it's something for every client, but it, particularly um, for some, it's a really, really critical factor, and it's a critical factor in how they choose who they work with because they want to work with people who share their culture. And if our diverse talent's been leaving and going in-house... That means our clients are more diverse than us, you know, and you hear lots of stories where people turn up to pitches with all straight, white, elite, educated men and walk into a room full of women, and let's just say it doesn't go really well. <laughs> that meeting's usually shorter than the other ones that day. 
just picking that point up, I mean, you know, I hear that a lot about sort of speaker events and marketing events where organisations don't put up speakers or representatives of chambers that actually are remotely diverse. And that's a real problem with a client group. A client group goes along at a, to a speaker event and just sees three straight white men speaking to them. With certain sectors, that goes down very badly. I mean, certainly, I do a lot of work for public authorities, government, local authorities, and they notice these things. You know, that's the fee- I've had feedback forms where that's what they said. You know, could, could you not find anybody else other than, you know, yet again, five white men? I mean, then... You know, it, it, that is an important thing as far as clients are concerned, for sure. Okay. Uh, gentleman back here, can we get the microphone? Yep. Hi, uh, Richard Hendron from Strand Chambers. Do you not think by uh, overly pushing diversity, and I think Daniel talking about um, 50% of uh, uh, people who enter uh, the workplace in law firms are female and 50% male, be it only uh, 30%? Uh, our female partners but surely naturally there'll be a drop off as women get married and have kids uh, as there'll be less of them and, and, if, and if we're pushing too hard for 50-50 that is going to create inequality Ladies. okay who's going to go <laughs> uh, well have you ever asked yourself why are they dropping off why can they, a, a woman not be at the top of her game, be successful, have a family and come back and be just as successful or work on uh, a different basis if she's not full-time, flexible time? And why does that only apply to, to women? It might apply to men who want to go and have a family and come back. Um, I, I, I struggle with the idea that, oh, it's a natural thing, that there's going to be a natural drop-off. Shouldn't we whatever your your background be fostering talent supporting talent and making sure that people have support to progress in their careers and know that they can come back after a period of leave if that if that's all or doing something else and and there's a job there for them i, I don't think we should just accept that, that it's it's a natural drop off that's my view i think also when you when you speak to women with children who've been in big law firms particularly who have, who have left or have had problems after having children, there are a remarkably similar set of stories that emerge, actually. Um, and that is that when they go back, they are not taken seriously. So women who were on partner track previously suddenly find themselves doing, you know, being put forward for professional support roles and things like that, even if that wasn't particularly something they wanted, not being um, allocated the most interesting, sexy, high-profile work, it being assumed that because they needed to leave at five o'clock every day that they weren't able to put the hours in later and there being a lack of flexibility about how they work. So, for example, I have two children. I leave every day at half past five then I start working again at about half past past seven and I can do that because I'm self-employed. I put in precisely the same number of hours as anybody else that I work with but I do it in a different way, in a flexible way. And the problem is places like law firms don't reflect or don't allow you to work in that sort of way. And so they lose people who are otherwise committed to being in the firm and still uh, as ambitious um, as they were previously because they're not flexible enough to change the working structures to work around them. Yeah, I think if you, if you think about your assumption, what that would say would be that we'd have lots of senior women who didn't have children. And the thing is, the numbers of women that leave, it, it's not... There, it's not more women leave who have children who don't. It's women are leaving the, leave the profession or go in-house, and many of them are single or, they're with, or they don't have families. Um, and also, 
if pe- why does a why does a man of color have the same experience or worse than a woman who's had a family? I mean, so I think you know, really, to me, it's it's kind of a red herring. Um, and I think you're right. It's about it's about it's about the tr- both of you are right. It's about the treatment people have. I mean, I know women who have gone on maternity leave and come back to found that every single one of their clients have been assigned to another cli- another partner. And then when they got back, they said, well, you don't have clients anymore. Go build your practice again from scratch. So they had all their clients stolen. So, you know, at some point, if you look at the experiences of women or people who are diverse, what you see is a lot of barriers being put in their way, and the barriers get higher and higher. And, if you, and I think one of the many reasons why women leave is if you are in a marriage and if your husband has a successful career and things are made impossibly difficult for you to be successful and you are trying to balance your work life and your children and you're able to make a choice that you'll, you're going to choose your family. And so the point is women are allowed to leave the profession and focus on their families. They shouldn't be doing it because their lives are made difficult or impossible if they're trying to be successful. They should leave because they've had the same opportunities anyone else has had in their situation, and they just make the choice that that's what they want to do. But I don't think that's the choice. Women aren't making that choice based upon fairness. And, you know, I have really rough, hard days at work, and I just think, oh, (laughs) to have a wealthy partner. (laughs) I might not be here today talking to you as a lawyer. I don't have the option of being able to walk out and leave, but i got to tell you, there are days where I, like, totally get it. I would sometimes. It's hard. Um, and, you know, as I said, you know, when you're successful, um, you know, you have failures you deal with every day. You pick them up. You have to pick yourself up and keep going forward. And it is more challenging. And if you look at the data, no matter what reason you're diverse, it is harder. And, and, and I firmly believe, you know, people say, but, but, you know, women are gone for a year or they're gone for two years. And I really feel like it's the attitude and the culture of the firm. Because I think if a guy left who had cancer or who, like, climbed Mount Everest, he'd come back to get high fives, oh my god, look at him, you know, Archie's back, think of all the amazing things he learned from the Sherpas, think of all the stuff he's bringing back to the business. You know, I've seen women announce their pregnancy, and literally, partners frown at them. People, I've heard partners telling women, they come to my office, and women, women have been told, well, don't think you're not going to have to work any harder just because you're pregnant. Um, I know women who, in their third trimesters, have gone to the doctor and they've been told that they have a detached placenta. They've been forced to be, they were working like 60, 70 hour weeks in their third trimester. They've been told that they, them and their child's life is in danger. And the woman smiled because they were told they didn't have to work anymore. And the doctor's like, this is a really unusual reaction <laughs> to being told that you and your baby's life are in danger. And she's like, oh my God, I'm just so happy I don't have to go back to work. <laughs> um, you know? And so, you know, I think until we really, really look at equality, you know, and make sure that we're treating everybody in a fair way, um, I, I don't think that we can really use that as an excuse as to why anybody's walking out the door. Good. Uh, yes, this question just here. <clears throat> Hi. I was on the Equality and Diversity Committee at my previous firm, and we'd sit in meetings and other people would despair about the fact that we had senior out role models, and yet there was a real dearth of juniors who were coming out. And HR would sit there and say, oh, we don't know what to do, we don't know how to tackle this. What advice would you give to, pe- to firms who are having this issue and trying to encourage diversity, but yet don't really know what to do? <laughs> I do a lot of this. I mean, I gotta tell you, I mean, I, when I started Interlaw, there were three law firms monitoring sexual orientation, and most of the firms were terrified to do it. And judiciary was terrified to do it. Our report was a big turnaround in that. 
and the change in, in, in chairmanship. But I spend a lot of time going to law firms um, who would say to me, we think we have gay people working here, but we don't know where they are and how do we find them? You know, and, and, you know, and I would tell them, you know, you start with baby steps. Have a, you know, do an LGBT History Month event. Have a speaker come in and have a lunchtime session. One firm sponsored an interlaw event and, you know, they paid 500 pounds for a sponsorship of, like, our first anniversary party. They sent out an email to their entire firm and said, we have tickets to this event. Who wants them? Nobody replied. But a year later... They, two trainees came out, a partner came out, they launched an LGBT network, and they're now like one of the biggest supporters. So you, you have to take little steps, but you have to send messages to your staff that it's okay to be LGBT and that the firm will support you. If, you know, a big problem with Judicial Appointments Commission was you went to the JEC's website and it had a diversity page that said, we embrace diversity, and it listed every class on, under the Equalities Act except for LGBT. And so what message does that send to people? Or if you're monitoring sexual orientation and you monitor everything but LGBT, what does that send? It sends a negative message that there might be an issue. So you have to be visible. You have to promote it. And it doesn't have to be LGBT senior people. In many places, the biggest champions are straight allies. So get senior partners to speak out and say, this is really important. Invite in an LGBT client and have a little lunchtime event. Really little steps like that that send big messages out that the firm is not only okay with you being gay, they support it. And yeah. just to, to add to that, actually, I mean, so I used to work for Mallisons back in Australia, now King and Wood Mallisons uh, here. And, I mean, also just the, the role of the internal networks. I mean, you're saying you're, you're part of an internal network yourself, but I remember, I mean, the day one when I walked in, um, there were a number of people absent from the immediate vicinity. So this is the first day I started as a trainee. And I was asking where everyone was, and it's like, well, Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Party was on the weekend, and <laughs> it's going to take a while before everyone gets back in from that. So that was, you know, that was kind of started with things. But then they had a very active internal network, which included partners and senior associates and people sort of all the way up the chain. And... Um, and uh, so I, was, I was out. I mean, I was impossibly out. At, at, uh, you know, my, my CV had LGBT all over it. And, um, uh, the, and so I was recruited as kind of the junior recruitment liaison, basically, to keep an eye out for anyone in the junior ranks who, who we might invite along to lunches uh, and events and other things like that. And the firm was very supportive of that, you know, help fund lunches and, and other kind of social events. And even this, that kind of quite minor thing can create a very welcoming environment in these kinds of contexts, I think. Um, there was another question just over in the corner here. Hi, I'm a researcher at Oxford University, and I'm organising LSE's LGBT Moot, which is coming up next month. Uh, I noticed in your presentations that, Daniel in particular, you referred to in the past your LGB, LGB report. And more recently, you've been focusing on transgender issues with your photograph series. Why do you think the focus on transgender has happened now? And what more can be done to focus on T and T plus? So not just transgender issues, but the whole spectrum. Um, well, well, so the first report I co-wrote with the Law Society, and I wanted, and I wanted to do LGBT, but the Law Society wanted to do LGB because that's what Stonewall did. And so Stonewall didn't cover the T for many years because they, the, um, they had a firm belief that sexual orientation and gender identity 
well, which is true, are two different things. Um, and you know, there was a, there was there were a lot of people within the trans community who were activists who didn't want to be lumped in in an umbrella with the rest of the LGB community. Um, I think that was wrong, and I think we've now seen Ruth Hunt step in and take a really careful canvassing of the transgender community and brought them into the fold, giving them the support and structure that Stonewall has. And the view is that they will either stay within it or they'll be kind of put on their feet and be able to maybe launch and go off on their own. I mean, now we've just seen, I think we just, as we see movements in society, I think we had a, you know, we had a moment where we saw, you know, step forward in race. I think we saw a moment where we saw a really a step forward for L and G, I still think the B is underrepresented and underspoken about and under and misunderstood greatly. Um, I think T has become more visible because of um, the fact that, you know, you have people like Caitlyn Jenner. I mean, I don't think people in the UK understand how famous Bruce Jenner was. I mean, we all grew up having Wheaties with him on the box. I mean, that is the most famous sportsman in the history of the United States and a, and a representative of America. I mean, I mean, there was like the American flag waving in the background and him running with a gold medal. So when you have someone that high profile um, who transitions very, very publicly, it has a huge impact on the public mindset. And you have shows like um, Orange is the New Black and you're, you're starting in Transparent is just amazing. So there's been a real cultural tipping point um, for transgender um, and you know, the, but the issue within the legal sector has been visibility. I have been searching for transgender lawyers uh, or people in the tra- in the legal sector literally since interlaw started. It took me six years to find my first transgender lawyer. Um, she did not want to speak publicly or come out or participate in, um, in interlaw. Um, so it's been a mission of mine to include the T, and we've always included the T in both the judicial research we did and the career progression report. The T has been there, and now people are starting to come forward, and now we do have lawyers and other professionals, and we were able to do the event. But if I tried to do an event two years ago, I would have had nobody on the stage. It would have been me standing up there. So we were really, really blessed to do it. And also by doing Purple Rain and the project going beyond legal, I was able to tap into members of the transgender community who weren't just in legal, so I was able to go wider. Um, so we did have representatives from the legal sector, but we had to fly Mia Yamamoto in from Los Angeles um, to have her. And we, but we do have other senior women who took photographs um, and participated within London, but it's just something that, that's taking time. So um, you start getting down to very small percentages. I mean, what percentage of the population is LGB? What percentage is the T? Um, it does become difficult. And then when you look at multiple identities as well. Yeah, I, I think I would echo particularly the, the. I think it's about having a group that's representative. Uh, I don't know whether as LGBT groups we are doing enough or we are or transgender people will want to join those networks maybe they we're not getting out to them and they think that well they're lgb lgb and then we're not really transgender i think there's more that individual networks and organizations can do to encourage people that we can help or, or do something or provide something to that community but it may be that that community needs their own uh, support as well in their own network um, maybe because I, I've spoken to just give you an example I don't have um, uh, uh, any knowledge of any transgender barristers uh, I think there is an issue with visibility there must be some but I don't know of any um, but uh, the bisexual uh, members of um, 
Blag have often said to me, well, I, I don't think Blag are doing enough for bisexuals. I feel that the B, B gets lost. And I have to acknowledge that because a, a, lot, a lot of things are focused on lesbian and gay. What about bisexual people? What Are we doing enough? Are we speaking about bisexuality enough? There are lots and lots of bisexual members of the bar. But um, I, I think there's a there's a, perhaps a feeling within the bisexual community that maybe the lesbian and gay community will not accept them or, or might treat them differently. So th- it's quite a complex thing, but I, I think we do need to look at you know, providing a space for each one together but separately because I think you, you, you can be too over, <laughs> too over trying to do everything. Each, I think each group needs a representative and a role model for them, but um, there is a there is a huge feeling I think now that transgender is is the next thing that everyone's thinking about. There's more transgender people in the media. Um, there's there's it's being talked about. I think there's lots. There's been quite an interesting documentary about young. Um, young it was, I think it was on Channel Four or BBC Three about young people going through the trans transgender process so I think the media is helping culture is helping to make it more discussed and more um, talked about but I, I you know I'd be interested if, if anyone um, has any views or knows transgender people what they feel and I feel that we need to reach out to transgender people more and understand what they need and what they want and I don't know if we're doing that enough I think it's that thing, notion we talked about earlier about, about reaching out and visibility. So we had our first transgendered event four years ago. We teamed up with Lloyd's Banking Group and did an event. And then we just put a, a, a section called Transgender Initiative on our website and said, if you're interested in working with us, reach out. And that's actually been effective, but you know, it took years. And that group that we kind of started working with has now become a citywide transgender initiative called Transformation. And they had their first anniversary recently. So, um, you know, we, we started four years ago, and it's been something that's kind of gradually, but just by kind of doing an event and saying this is something we're interested in, the same way an employer comes out and says we're interested in LGBT generally, we as organizations have to send those signals that it's something we welcome and we want help with. But at the same time, there is only so much resource and work. So if someone bisexual comes forward to me and says, I want you to do more work, I'm like, great. What do you want to do with me? Help me plan an event. You know, so there, you know, we, we, we only have limited resources, so it means people coming forward and wanting to do that work with us. Great. So do we have any final questions? We are getting very close to 8 o'clock, so maybe this gentleman at the back. Just wait for the... <coughs> Hello, uh, Mark Mason from University of Westminster. Um, just two very quick questions, if, if I can. Um, Claire, you mentioned that candidates should look for information as to who are going to be the most friendly chambers. But there seems to be a bit of a sparsity of, of data out there. So how, how can candidates do that? What, what tips would you have for them? <coughs> um, secondly, yeah. we've sort of had a clear picture of problems with the solicitor's profession and, and solutions as well. Um, but slightly less clear at the bar, it's a slightly rosier picture. Is that because the picture you think is rosier or is that through a, a dearth of information in, in some respects? Um, research, yeah. I, guess, but I think there's a, lot much, there's a lot more information on Chambers' websites now. And it doesn't take, it's not too hard to just click on, click on a chamber, see what areas of law they do, look at the people, where, and generally um, the, where you went to university, what your backgrounds are. As I say, I, I'm very clear that I'm a member of BLAG, um, involvement in, in 
communities and other things might give you a clue. Um, but if you have a look on the website and see, you know, is that what? Who are these people within the chambers? And get a feel. Talk to people, um, you know, at your law schools or anyone who who knows lawyers and the bar. Go to events. You know, talk to people. Find out information about what chambers are like. What cha- you know? Talk to people. Look on the websites. Um, but you know, overall, if you've got an idea of what kind of law you want to go for, um, you know, you will look at what who are the most successful chambers in that area, and you will tailor your your um, applications towards there. But you know, you do get a lot of sense of from the website of what you know how chambers is made up. Um, and uh, I know a colleague of mine who is in a, quite a traditional chambers, and she is the only uh, woman. Who, of colour, of an ethnic minority, in that chambers, um, and she's the she is the bandwagon for the equality and diversity in that chambers. But she, um, she has found a, you know found a remit in that chambers because of the work she does and the people she knows. Um, and so that you know it may be that you you know you are the only um, particular minority within that chambers, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's that's a barrier. Straight allies as well, particularly at the bar, they it's so important. There are lots of people who actively support LGBT and, and other different my, um, uh, minorities. Um, it, it's not um, it's not something I think. Um, it, I think what I'm, try, what I'm trying to get across is that it, it is going to be more difficult if you don't understand the culture and the ethos of Chambers because it's what Sarah, Sarah's explaining. People do want to recruit people who are going to fit in well because within the bar you are going to work with them for a period of time. But that doesn't mean that has to be you know, down to your, um, your sexual orientation, your, your gender. It, it's about where you're going to fit in as a person. And that's where I come back to the authenticity thing. You've got to be yourself to find the place where you need to be. Um, and then, sorry, the second question was, I've forgotten. <laughs> um, it, it was then, uh, the, the fact that you seem to have a slightly greater picture of the bar, and whether that's an accurate picture, or whether there's a slight, well, there's less information about the bar and, and I'm going to have to ask that we keep the answer reasonably brief, if that's all right. Um, I, I do think there needs to be more data. I do, needs to, I do think there needs to be inform- more information. Uh, I don't necessarily agree there's a rosy picture of the bar, <laughs> unfortunately, because it is quite male-dominated. Um, yeah. Statistically, the bar is behind solicitors and the profession. So I think these two women have had, are amazing and have had amazing careers, but statistically, the bar there are more issues and more challenges at the bar. If you speak with people at it, they, they, they say it has to do with the structure of chambers. I don't believe that. I think that you know organizations are organizations, and I think you get people to march in the same direction or you don't. Um, I think that's something that people use as an excuse more than, um, more than it's a reality. The point is there's just a lot of work to do within the, within the entire legal sector, and I think that there's more work to do within the bar. And I think that's why you see something like free, like free bar launching. Um, because th- there's a view that there needs to be more work done on working with chambers to move forward. So, and indeed, there are some differences, and I'm sure some structures. But look, having worked in lots of law firms, I mean, partnerships are not exactly, you know, everyone, you know, just because the managing partner says go do X, you know, you've got 150 people who then walk and go do Y, Z, A, C, and D. 
Do you have a couple of final yeah, comments? Yeah, very, very quickly. I think the, to the question, how do you know? I think the answer is it's quite difficult. And I think the only way, I mean, you're, you're not going to go on most barristers' chambers' websites and, and get a, you know, a really clear steer on um, uh, the LGBT stuff. I think you've got to go on a much more sort of amorphous sense, actually, looking. Is, is it a chambers that looks modern? Do they still have afternoon tea, for example? I mean, that's, you know, can be a sign of a slightly less forward thinking place. Um, I think. In terms of the position of the bar being rosier, I would say that it's probably not. And I think it's just the problem is, I think the the problem with the bar is that they are small units chambers. They're relatively small organisations. A lot of them have not really modernised and are still very much um, employing, I suppose, workplace practices from, you know, the 1940s and 50s. Um, And they they don't have... Um, sort of human resources departments they don't have the big structures that big city firms might have for example Um, but I think it is very much more difficult to assess at the bar because I think there are units in the bar that are probably shining examples of how well to do it but equally there are some really dire examples of places where it's probably not a very comfortable place to be to be out Okay, on that note, we're going to have to wrap it up for today. Um, So a mixed picture, but there's still an undercurrent of uh, optimism, I think, that there is progress being made in various forms. So thank you very much, everyone, for coming out tonight, and keep an eye out for the podcast.